It's my fervent prayer that I rightly divide the word of God. You do not have in front of you the Mark Lanier version of 1 Corinthians. I'm not trying to supplant Paul's uh, letter. Uh, I could never do that. The Holy Spirit does not inspire me in the same manner in which Holy Scripture was inspired. That does not mean I don't try and teach by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but there's a difference between that and and the God-breathed Scriptures that we have. So with that caveat, legal word, with that uh, disclaimer, thank you, um, what I'm trying to do, and, and I told him this in the final, next to final email. I said, look, I said, when I teach people how to study the Bible, and I tell them how to study an epistle, I tell them the first thing they should do is in one sitting, with a pen and paper, they should read through the entire letter or epistle. Jotting down notes of frequently occurring words or themes or ideas rough divisions in the text, and then and only then go back and try to start parsing out paragraphs and ultimately verses and word by word. That's the way we do it. We don't start with the particulars. We start with the big picture and work toward the particulars. I said, so think of this as the first 45 minutes of that. And we will come back and deal with particulars at a later phase. But I said, as much as these folks are kind to me in class, I don't think many of them would stay long enough for me to go through 1 Corinthians verse by verse, word by word, and explain it. And we miss something of the book if we don't take it as an entire flow. Does that make sense? Okay, so with that, here's our class on 1 Corinthians. I love the way the letter starts. Have you ever been in a church that fights? Have you ever been anybody who's fussing in the church? Oh, it may be over the carpet or it may be over something more serious. We've had churches that split over whether or not to have kitchens in them. Churches have split over whether or not to even have Bible study. Churches have split over the issues of charismatic gifts. Churches have split over the doctrine of free will versus predestination. Churches have split over whether women should be allowed to participate in worship and to what degree. Churches have split over any number of different things. And I'm not adding value or taking away value or merit to any of those. But I do find it interesting that the Corinthian church had so many problems. They had charismatic problems. They had problems on women's issues. They had problems on divisions and and cliques and groups. They had petty bitterness problems. They had sin problems. They had all sorts of problems. And yet Paul addresses the letter to that church with those problems to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. It's kind of neat that he starts the letter out that way. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at the letter in one fell swoop. 
I will not rehash what we've already learned about Corinth. You can get on the internet and read those lessons with two exceptions. We should remember that Paul had been, Paul established the church, well, God did through Paul, and Paul was there for over 18 months in Corinth. And then over the years after, and it's been probably two to three years afterwards that Paul's writing them. But during that time period, there'd been communication back and forth. Apollos had gone back and forth, probably Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy. The Corinthians had already written Paul before. Paul had already written the Corinthians before. In other words, when we read our book of 1 Corinthians, we're kind of coming into the middle of a movie. And God gives us enough in Scripture to know that because God wants us to understand that when we read this letter. When you walk into the middle of a movie, in some ways this helps us understand parts of 1 Corinthians. In some ways it hurts us as we try to understand parts. It helps us in that we can look at it and say, ah, this is clearly written about a specific problem. That's there in that church at a specific time. You know, when Paul says it's good for single people to stay single in light of the circumstances or the immediate problems that are there. We may not know what those immediate problems are, but it helps us to understand that Paul put that qualifier out there. That Paul's writing. Now, the the way it hurts us is we don't know all of the details of what was going on. And so we've really got to try and struggle and we've got to be careful as we try and apply scriptures. You know, Paul will write about the baptism of the dead. Or baptism for the dead, excuse me. Baptism for the dead. And it's a real struggle for scholars to figure out what he means because we weren't there to really see what they were doing and how they were doing it. So we've got to piece some things together. So with that as background, I will give you the letter... Um, in a light, exegetical manner, as if I were reading it to you with some light exegesis blended in. In case the good doctor's listening on the internet. Paul writes as an apostle. He doesn't say, hey, I want to write you because I founded that church. Or, hey, I want to write you because I'm your spiritual daddy. Or I want to write you because uh, I have every right to being Paul. Paul says, I'm writing you because I'm an apostle. I'm someone God sent to you. So I'm writing you with God's message for you. That's the authority behind this. And as I write to you, I'm very thankful that God's graciously touched you. Because God's gracious touch affects so much of who you are and what you do. God's gracious touch affects the way you speak. And your speech shows that God has touched your life. Not just the way you speak, but the way you think. Your brain, the way you function shows that God has touched your life. And the way you've grown spiritually through the gifts that God's given you, the spiritual gifts... Shows God's touch in your life. And I'm thankful that God's touching you. Take a moment and realize. Anybody in this room that knows God. Take a moment. Realize. Almighty God has touched your life. 
He doesn't just generically go out there and say, okay, let's, let's sprinkle touch like fairy dust all over everybody. No, he calls you by name. He holds you in the hollow of, your, of his hand and he's touched your life. And that's an awesome thing. And Paul's very thankful for it. And Paul says, but we got some things that we need to address. So let's get after it. First off, stop the divisions. Okay. Stop, oh, I follow Paul. Why don't I follow Apollos? Well, I follow Peter. You know he's going to be first pope. And then the really pious ones. I simply follow Jesus. And then you're dividing up into groups over this? Stop it. Just stop it. It's got me so frustrated. I'm glad I wasn't there to even be the guy baptizing you. Well, I baptized a few of you. But not many. Because it's not a question of who I am. And it's not a question of who Peter is. And it's not a question of who Apollos is. All that matters is the cross of Christ. And that's why when I came to you, I decided I wasn't going to know anything else. But Jesus Christ crucified. That's my message. Everything else, they're the details. They're the way the message permeates out. The undercurrent bubbles up periodically in these different areas. But that undercurrent that girds everything is Jesus Christ crucified. Now, to the Jews, that may seem really... uh, 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 Wrong. A trap. After all, the Old Testament says, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. And for Jews, it's a real hang-up to think that Jesus could ever be cursed by God. So that's a trap for them, but it's still the way God saves people. To the Greeks, it just seems silly. Seems foolish. Why would God send His Son to die? Because they don't understand the seriousness of sin and they don't understand the character of God that requires justice because God doesn't change. And God can't just roll over and say, oh gee, you're a sinner, well come be part of me. God's got to do something about sin. And so, that's why I came to you. And I was in a lot of fear and trembling when I came. I didn't come Johnny Powerhouse. I never came in personal strength. Now, while I tell you this is folly and foolishness to the Greeks, I don't want to leave the wrong impression. You may be thinking, well, on this, Paul's saying that, that he has a simple message. After all, I said, I only came to preach Christ and Him crucified. Is it so simple, though? Let me tell you, not under the surface. You may think you see it, but it's so deep because it's the wisdom of God, the God who created the universe. It's the wisdom of God that only the Holy Spirit even understands because it proceeds from the heart of God. And if you want to understand it, you pray to God for His Holy Spirit to explain it. Because man doesn't do it alone. 
It's the greatest profundity. It is profound to the nth degree. Now, I'd love to tell you all about it, but the problem is y'all are still stuck on Gerber's. You're a bunch of milk-fed babies. Like Pastor Fleming referenced this morning in his sermon. You're not ready for the meat. I mean, you show it when you have these petty bickerings. I go to the Mark Lanier Sunday school class. Oh, really? Well, I go to the so-and-so Sunday school class, and it's, it's better. No, mine is. I'm sure y'all are saying that, aren't you? No. Um, <laughs> Paul says, look, do you not get it? I came, and what I did is I planted the seed. Apollos comes. He waters the seed. But you got to plant. And the reason you got to plant is because God made it grow. God's the one who gets the glory. It's not, oh, follow Paul. I follow Apollos. You're a traitor. Paul was here first. No. This is, as David said again, God is not into random. This is all very planned. We've got one of our pastors here, Stephen Trammell, who co-teaches in this class with me. It's not random that Stephen's at this church. It's not random any of y'all are here. We have Jennifer Miori visiting from Austin today. It's not random that Jennifer's here. Her grandparents are here. It's not random. God doesn't do random. God's out for it. Paul says, let me use a building metaphor. I laid a foundation. Now, you be careful how you build on it. But I laid a foundation. And the foundation, by the way, is Jesus Christ. That's the only foundation that will sustain a building. But you be careful how you build. You be careful how you treat each other. You be careful how you teach. You be careful how you worship. You be careful how you learn. You be careful how you live. Because there comes a time of testing by fire. And if you want to build with wood and hay and stubble, it's going to burn up. You want to build with gold and stones and jewels, things that last for eternity. Because what you're building here is not an ordinary house. You're not building a spec home for David Weekly or Pulte. This is not just an Al Mendoza home, though his will outlasts the others. This home is the body of Christ. It's the church. It lasts for eternity, so the way you build ought to last for eternity, so that you have something to treasure for eternity. Instead of going to judgment day and seeing everything you did burn up. That's what we're about. Now, I get your letters, and I get the information. I got the emails from you. I got your webcast. I've read your blog. And I'm so happy to find out that you're rich. Oh, must be nice. What an honor it is to know you. By the way, when you read the Greek, 
And I took First Corinthians in Greek in an advanced Greek class, and we translated it one one quarter. And it's 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 really fun to read because Paul is very ironic and sarcastic, but he alternates it with very kind and gentle. And it's the kind of thing you can probably only get away with if you really know these people, <laughs> which he did. But this is one of the sarcastic areas. He says, oh, what a privilege to know you. You're so rich. It's a real privilege for me. I'm so lucky to be around you. After all, I don't got anything. I got to work for a living. It's such an honor to be around you. Y'all are so strong. Because I'm so weak. By the way, that's why I sent you Timothy. And you didn't treat him right. Some of you were way out of line. And if you really think you're that strong, you keep it up because I'm coming. And when I get there, we'll see who's really strong. Because I'll take you on. By the way, I'm over here in Ephesus writing this. We know this because of Acts. He doesn't put it in the letter. But even my napkins and aprons that I touch are being used to heal the sick. And I'm sure you got word of that. So you guys really think you're tough stuff and you can abuse Timothy and other people? That's fine. I'm coming. And we'll see who the strong people really are. Now, if you've got a dose of humility... Let's try and talk about some things that need fixing. First of all, you've got some sexual sin out there that's absolutely atrocious. You have accepted it into your midst. You've got basically a man living with his, what's probably stepmother in a sexual relationship. That's outrageous not only to God, that's even outrageous to the pagans. And it's like yeast in bread. Sin. Sin is like yeast in bread. A little goes a long way because it permeates and causes the whole dough to rise. Get it out. Get it out. You want to save that boy's soul? You deliver him to Satan. Let Satan destroy his flesh and maybe his soul can be saved. But this is a holy house. And you treat it that way. This is the kingdom of God. The church is the kingdom of God. And what you're doing just blows my mind. When you have a fuss against someone in the church. The kingdom of God has a fuss against the kingdom of God. You're going to the courts of man to resolve it. Like some pagan supposed to make judgment on the kingdom of God and its citizens. Wrong. Or the way you're living. Sexually immoral. Idolaters. Adulterers. People practicing homosexuality. Thieves. Greedy people. Drunkards. Revilers. Swindlers. 
Not y'all. It's not what the Greek meant. People who swindle. No. No, that's not what you need to be. You may have been that way before, but let God work in your life. That's not your practice. You've done it before. Don't do it again. You're doing it now. Stop. You're having trouble stopping. Get help. That's not what belongs in the kingdom of God. It just doesn't. Now, I got your letter. And your letter, y'all were so proud of what you had to say. You said, look, we can do anything we want. We're saved by grace. Amen. Hallelujah. Pass the sin. We're saved by grace, not by works. We can do anything we want. Everything's lawful for you. Okay, don't be stupid. Everything may be lawful, but that doesn't mean that it's helpful. You might be able to drive like a maniac, but you'd be a fool to do it. Just because you're saved by grace does not mean you wallow in sin. If you think that's what it is, you got it absolutely backwards. You're saved by grace to set you free so you don't have to waller in sin. Now, you wrote also and you were thinking about abstinence. Married people not having sexual relations with each other because it's holy to stay apart. Wrong. God made you for each other. If you want a time of abstinence, that's okay. But I'm putting three conditions on it. Condition one, it's got to be limited. You've got to say, for this time period. Condition two, it's got to be for a purpose of devoting yourselves to prayer. Condition three, come back together again soon. Because the temptation is too great. Satan is out to tempt you. So be alert to this. I want to talk to you a minute about marriage while we're in this subject area. Do you stay single or do you get married? Well, there are some problems going on right now that might make it smart to stay single. But I want to tell you this. There's nothing more holy about being single or more holy about being married. God makes them both. And if you've got the longing, you need to go ahead and get married. Because you don't want to live in sin. If you're, God called you to be single, praise the Lord. I tell you what, single people in some ways serve God better. Because they're not having to spend all their time and energy worried about their family. They can spend all their time and energy worried about God's kingdom. So there's nothing wrong with either state. And you need to, to realize that. There are pros and cons to each. Avoid divorce. Now, some of you people are in mixed marriages because you've come to know Jesus. Don't leave your spouse just because you're a Christian and your spouse isn't. That may be how your spouse gets one to the Lord. That may be how your kids find out about Jesus. If your spouse is not a believer and your spouse leaves you, okay, so be it. There's some things you can't control. 
But there are opportunities within a mixed marriage. Now understand, I'm Mark Lanier adding here, Paul's not writing people who are contemplating marrying someone who's not a Christian. He's writing people where one of the spouses was saved after the marriage. I don't think Paul would think highly of someone becoming one flesh with a pagan. Now, if you're a widow, it's fine to stay a widow. But it's also fine to get married again. You do what God's leading you to do in that regard. Okay, you got another problem we need to talk about, and that's food sacrifice to idols. When you go to the butcher shop, you can buy kosher meat, and you know that it will have been slain right. But when you go to the pagan butcher shops, you don't have a clue whether the meat was butchered there right or whether it was part of a sacrifice at the temple and then taken back. He says, you know, this, this bothers some people. And I, I don't want people's consciences bothered. You're saying, well, these people are just stupid. Okay, don't have a snooty attitude about this. You've got no right to have a snooty attitude about this. This is not a question of some people are just stupid because there's no such thing as an idol. Look, if you got someone who has spent 50 years of their life, every time they take a bite of meat thinking this meat is holy and dedicated to the God Zeus, and all of a sudden they've come to know the Lord Jesus, but you're going to sit there and feed them that same meat again? Don't have a snooty attitude if it bothers their conscience. I'd rather be a vegetarian than cause someone to stumble. And to mess up their mind. You know there might be people who are sitting there thinking, well, I've always believed in a multitude of gods. Now I know there's only one God and I believe the truth and the Holy Spirit's convicted me. But it never hurts to be safe, just in case. There are people who aren't as fully developed spiritually. And you shouldn't have a snooty attitude over it. Look at me. If I could save a Jew... I will. Freedom, this is what freedom is. I've been set free, all things are lawful. Freedom means I can be who God needs me to be. I'm free to work for God's purposes, not my own and not yours. If, if I need to be a Jew to the Jews, I'll be a Jew to reach them. But I'll tell you, if I need to be a Greek to the Greeks, I'll be a Greek. I'll be whatever I need to be. Because that's what I'm about. We're trying to, to, to carry God's plan forth and win the world for God. I mean, y'all have those pan-isthmus games in Corinth every other year. Kind of like mini Olympics. Why do you think the runners run? Why do they train so hard? Why do they beat their bodies up? Because they want to rent, win the crown, the wreath. Which, by the way, perishes. We're running for something much bigger. We're running for an eternal crown and an eternal kingdom. If you're going to train so hard and do all of this, why in the end are you going to live in such a way that it rips people up? Don't do that. 
Oh, we can be free. All things are lawful. Yeah, you want to know who else got free? The Jews. They were in Egyptian captivity. God set them free. They got their freedom. Do you know what they did with it? Well, they weren't too smart. And it got them in a whole lot of hot water and ruin. Don't sit there, oh, I'm free. You're free to work for God. Now, here's the way it goes. God is the head of all things. God's the head of Christ. Christ, that's, Paul will write to the Philippian church later, some of Christ's humility, being a, in essence God, he emptied himself and took on the form of man. Subjected himself. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. Now men, if you're going to pray, if you're going to proclaim a word of the Lord, don't you cover your head. You pray through Christ. You proclaim your word of the Lord through Christ. Just like culturally, men don't walk around with long hair. Back then in Corinth. In the same way, it'd, it'd be humiliating for a man to preach or pray covering up Christ. As if he could pray on his own. Now women, when you preach or pray, if you're going to preach or pray, you need to cover your head. Just like culturally, it'd be shameful for you to go out without a head covering. So when you preach and pray, you cover man because you do it straight through Christ also. Now, y'all, on the Lord's Supper, this is like really bad the way it's going down. I understand y'all are having it as part of an agape feast. That's a wonderful thing to do. But you're coming together and you're using it to fill up. You're not waiting for everybody else to get there probably weren't using Welch's grape juice either. And so you come together and you just get started. Because you can't wait. Okay, this is a holy thing. This is not a meal in the ordinary sense. And you need to treat it that way. And when you come together, you come together as a body. Christ is one body. Took a loaf and he broke it. It was one loaf he broke and shared with the body. It was one cup he took and shared with the body. This is one. His body is one. When you come together, you examine the body. And you examine yourself. And you do this right. Let's talk about spiritual gifts for a minute. The Spirit has given you these gifts for the good of the church. That's why you've got them. You got a gift of teaching or administration. You got a gift of counseling. You got a gift of love and hospitality. You got a gift of organization and structure and service. You got gifts. You got a gift, gift of hospitality and sharing with, with other children and other nationalities and cultures. Whatever gifts you've got from God, you've got them for the good of the church. These are not out there so that you can get all puffed up and feel like, hey, I got the super gift. I'm the... Unless you're crypt tonight, I win. This is not about, oh, my gifts are bigger than your gifts. My gifts are better than yours. I mean, you're all one body. 
Does the nose say to the ear, well, I'm more valuable than you. Without me, you can't smell. Well, yeah, but without the ear, you can't hear. Without the foot, you don't walk as well. Without the eye, you don't see. Does one part of the body ever accuse another part of the body? I'm more important than you are. No. Now, I'll tell you, actually, though, there is one gift that is more important. And if you want it, you can have it. All of you. It's available to everybody. It's, it's, you really want to know, you want, you want the best gift of all? Okay. It's love. It's love. Love is phenomenal. It doesn't keep tracks of wrongs. It, it's patient. It's kind. It, it, it sustains and, and builds up and, and nurses and, and, and is confident and, and, and it lasts through eternity. I mean, you compare it to faith and you compare it to hope. And those are great things. But through eternity, our faith will be made sight. Through eternity, our hope becomes reality. But love, it lasts forever. That's the one you want. So when you're thinking about these other things like, you know, speaking in tongues, which I'm willing for everybody to do, that's fine. But watch the way you do it. Watch the way you do it. Because I'd rather be able to say five words that people can understand than 10,000 they can't. So if you're coming into an assembly, don't start babbling in some language people can't understand where people who are visiting are going to think you're nuts. If you're going to babble like that, you better have someone there to interpret. Because the assembly itself is an important thing. It's, it's something that needs order. Purity. You know, don't have a bunch of people talking all at the same time. This is not organized chaos. This is something that God's put there. Do you know, when we worship, we come into His presence in a special way. When we worship corporately. Our life is worship. But in corporate worship, we come into His presence in a special way. And the Psalms say that there's strength in the sanctuary of the Lord. You come before God... And you draw strength from it. It's important. Now, I want to remind you one more time before I sign off of the core of our faith. I want to remind you the words I used to deliver the good news to you. It was very simple. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried and resurrected. That's the good news. That is the good news. You hear the word gospel, you think death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Don't start thinking, oh, uh, uh, the nativity scene. That's not the good news. That was good news, but it's not the good news. The good news is Jesus Christ died, was buried, and resurrected. And what that means is 
when that day comes when we die. It's not the end. And those who've gone on before us, who are in Christ, it's not the end. Jesus Christ was resurrected. We are in Christ. We share in the resurrection. He came again. We'll come again. We'll meet up with him in the air, as I told the Thessalonians. Jesus Christ will come again. And and in a twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be changed. And that which is physical and perishable will put on the imperishable. When Jesus Christ comes again, our death is not the end of us. It's the beginning of eternity. It's the door we pass through into God's glory. So, encourage each other with that. And you hang on to that. Because all of us, everyone in this room, will have to face death. Um, closing matter. Don't forget, I'm, I'm taking up a collection for the folks in Jerusalem who need it right now. We've got brothers and sisters there who have famine problems and they're hungry and they're starving and they don't have any money. Enough. So would you set aside a little each week for them? I don't want you to just say, well, we'll wait till Paul gets here because I know you, you'll spend the money. So budget. Do the Dave Ramsey thing. Maybe it was Davidus Ramseyus. Sort of sounds Italian, you know, Romanesque, Latinesque. But do that. Take your stewardship seriously. I don't know that I take it or some of y'all take it. This isn't for me. This is for the starving church that needs the help. Um, I got some personal notes for some personal people. But let me close by telling you that I love you. I love you. And I'll see you soon. And with that, Paul closes his letter. Our points for home. I really like, I really like, I take solace in the statement to those sanctified called to be saints. Because they had a lot of problems. But Paul could see not only the problems that God wanted to change, Paul could see what God was going to make of them. Paul could see the baby eating the food, but he also knew what they'd grow up to be by the hand of God. And so Paul's able to give them admonition in child rearing, but he's also recognizing eternally they are children of God Almighty, saints, sanctified. It's a process, but it's going to happen. For them and for us. Point two. (sighs) Let no one deceive himself. Arrogance is a horrible thing. What do we have to be snooty about? I honestly, what do we have to be snooty about? We live in America. Well, thank God. 
But that's nothing to be snooty about. God doesn't value Americans differently than he values anyone else on the planet he made. He didn't make Americans more special. Well, I can be snooty. I had very good parents. Like, I had anything to do with that? I love my mom. I think she's the most wonderful mom in the world, save maybe my wife or one of my sisters, but I can't get snooty about it. Oh, I have possessions. (laughs) Yeah, you get braggy over that and God will rip them from you real quick. Oh, but I'm... I'm spiritually mature. Meh, wrong. You bragged about it. That's a sure sign you're not. Baby face. You know, when it all boils down, it's like Paul said. May I never boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. For by grace, I stand. And finally, pursue love. Pursue love with all you've got. It is the greatest gift. There's a reason Jesus said, you ask for the greatest command, I'll give you two. Because they go hand in hand. Love God with everything you've got and love everybody else. Love your neighbor. Who, by the way, is everybody that you come into contact with on your road in life. Even if they're Samaritan different from you. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for the cross of Jesus Christ. And I confess to you right now that without it, our lives would be empty and meaningless. Our worship would be hollow. Without it, we would be uh, a car going fast without a steering wheel. There would be no direction in our lives. But Lord, with your cross comes forgiveness for all of the horrible sins that each one of us have committed. The sins we've done in the past, the sins that ensnare us today, and the errors that we'll doubtless make in the future, save your coming to redeem us for eternity. And then finally, Lord, I ask you to take each one of us and grow our hearts with your love, your compassion, your kindness, your caring, your attention to others. Lord, I pray that we will love you more fully than we ever have before. With respect and appreciation and awe at you as God and as Father. And Jesus is Savior. That through your spirit, Lord, we'll love each other. That arrogance, snootiness will have no place. That race, that anything, money, that uh, looks, personality, Lord, nothing will get in the way of us loving each other in your body the way you love each of us. We pray through Jesus, our head. Amen.